could either break you or make you, and if it breaks you, you know what, you're just gonna just be broken, physically and mentally. Oh, I haven't seen a, a tree or a plant since, since 2003. The only thing that I've seen is a spider in the corner, and I find them little bugs sometimes, and I feed the spider. That's about the only closest thing to nature I have. It's not to the point where you want to commit suicide. But sometimes I'm at the point that we want to write the judge and say, just give me the death penalty. Just give me the death penalty, man. Shell 22 and a half hours a day. And then our yard is just brick walls. I'm not able to go out to a yard and be with other people. If I'm not able to see um, things around me, whether it's trees, grass, birds, to talk to my family, um, to get sunlight. You had people in here that's been in solitary confinement longer than I've been alive. If you could put every emotion of the human spirit of hopelessness, pain, agony, hatred, frustration, uh, a sense of, of, of continuous silently screaming, all these emotions and while you're locked in this cage treated like some animal, most people wouldn't even treat an animal like that an animal who was suffering pain uh, they would take him to the vet and get do something for him like i had to take a lot of deep breaths before i came in here <laughs> just being around people it, it's it's not an awkward it's a good feeling but it's still an anxiety feeling because i haven't been it's like wow i'm, I'm around i'm around free people i'm, I'm around regular people This is a behavior modification, psychological, a low intensity warfare against the mind of a human being. That's what exists here at Pelican Bay. It's the same thing day in and day out. It's Don't just change. psyching ourselves out to make the best of the day. It's kind of robotic. Have you just spoke to 100 guys today? You're the same thing. I get up and get up, roll up my mattress, pull my blanket, brush my teeth. Drink some uh, water, brush my teeth again, uh, clean, clean the cell, towel, clean the sink, towel, and I wipe the, the, floor, the walls. You do certain things just to fill up that time. Where you can hear the vent and you focus on it. Like, man, did I just hear a whisper right now? And the person starts focusing on this little noise because the noises and the vision are the senses. And that's what we have to constantly survive. But if I had a window to look at, I think. If they came by every half an hour, I'd be sitting in that window. Yes, I committed a crime to come to prison, but don't make the assumption that my current situation here being Pelican Bay Shoe is due to my continuous criminal behavior because I have grown that a long time ago.
humankind has a history of ugliness and humankind also has a history of beauty it's in all of us and you need laws to have a society not go into chaos ultimately people have the ability to look at what is bad and good in a way that is not insulting, not aggressive, not with bullets, through psychology, creating a better understanding of each other. Everybody deserves a chance. Thank you for taking your time to hear my voice because our voices are rarely heard. Okay. And welcome back. Um, this is still Mark Steiner, and uh, the piece you just heard was something I thought was a wonderful setup to the conversation that we're about to have called The Torment of Solitary Confinement. That was a video that was done by uh, Callie Bandad and Gabriel Canon, who were, uh, worked, did this for The Atlantic magazine, and it holds up as audio in this video. And it says a lot about the conversation we'll have to have, as I told you before you came on, with Karamet Writer, Writer? Yes. Uh, who is author of 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison, and the rise of long-term solitary confinement. And she's also assistant professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society, and the School of Law at the University of California, Irving, Irvine, California, Irvine. It's a mouthful. It is. <laughs> Come out, welcome, good to have you in the studio. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, we've, we've covered this issue um, a bunch over the course of the years and um, and looked at Pelican Bay more than once mm -hmm. with other people who have come on. So let's take a little history. I mean, one, it's a... Uh, this hard piece of Cleveland to talk about here, but talk about this was your doctoral. This started as a doctoral thesis, right? It did, yes. So tell me, uh, <laughs> Which makes it sound way more boring than I hope it is. No, it's but... not boring at all. It's not boring. No, it's actually, very well written. Um, but so, the, and and that's actually how you you talk about this in the book. So yes. Talk a bit about that. So uh, I had been doing prison advocacy work for a number of years. I actually started teaching in prison in college and got interested in how the prison policies we had came about. And I actually ended up in graduate school because as an advocate, I kept saying that we we didn't really know enough about our prisons to even be able to make good recommendations or to figure out what kinds of issues to litigate. Uh, so that kind of pushed me more and more towards wanting to do research. And one of the things that at the time, uh, more than 10 years ago, we really knew the least about was solitary confinement, who was there, how long they were there, why they were there. And so as someone who was interested in prison issues and wanted to, you know, uncover things that we didn't know, it was an obvious choice for me. So, I mean, you, clearly, the way you describe it, you're, you were kind of not just had your eyes open, but were a little blown away by what you started to discover. That's exactly true. In right? fact, when I when I talk <laughs> about this in front of academic audiences, I often sort of say, you know, I, I started to try to understand solitary confinement, and I I do a talk that's about the things that surprised me as I as I went through the process of doing this research. As you know, as someone who had already spent years working on this these issues, and and when I went in, I really thought what I would do was be able to look really closely at solitary confinement in California, talk to prisoners and staff who had lived and worked in these units, uh, and just uncover what it was like. And it turned out even that was almost impossible to, to get that kind of access. These places were so closed. And then to understand how they came about turned out to be its own sort of horrifying story that how places like Pelican Bay came Exactly. About, how we got, you know, a, a country that has <clears throat> thousands of people in long-term solitary confinement. I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I will, do want to get to that history, but I want to march, march through some of the other history you talked about first with George Jackson and mm -hmm. Moore and, and, uh, um, and, 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 and Carl Larson, mm -hmm. which is a fascinating piece of the story. 
Um, but to me, it's interesting that th- this book is being written now and all these other things are coming out. Shane Bauer's piece on yes, Pelican yes. Bay, which is – we had the conversation with him some months uh, back. Ah, he's great. <laughs> yeah. Shane's wonderful, yes. Yeah. Um, and – but this country has, I mean, for over 100 years been battling this question of solitary confinement. Yes. The Supreme Court actually said this is barbaric back in the 1890s. Exactly. Right? Yeah. But we're still dealing with it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, why, why do you think it's so politically difficult to get to the heart of this for people? Well, I – I'll say two things that I think have made it really hard. One is that we've been in this kind of constant process of refining it and making it better and better. And the brighter and shinier and more technologically advanced it gets, the harder it is to see the harms and to litigate it. So the modern supermaxes we have today, in a way, are kind of a perfect refinement of the dungeons we might have imagined having in the 1890s that the Supreme Court was dismissing. So the facilities we have today, the lights are always on. There's running water. They're they're computer automated and the doors open very systematically from the press of a button. uh, And they're not overcrowded. And so in a lot of ways, they look so much cleaner and better than what came before. And you don't When these institutions open, sometimes you see really horrible abuses. But even at Pelican Bay, you don't really see prisoners and guards beating each other up anymore. You don't see the kinds of horrifying physical abuses that were exposed when it opened in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, And so it's harder. It's just much harder to see the harms that are that are psychological and long term. So I I think that's one piece of the story. Uh (laughs) Um, I think the other piece of the story is that when we have the kinds of prisons we have, And they are as hidden from society as they tend to be. And we kind of put them out of sight, out of mind, lock them away, lock them up and throw away the key that it's hard to know what's happening behind those closed doors. And the people left to manage those institutions have an incredibly hard job. And they kind of develop their own tools and resources. And they have no incentive to tell us what they're doing. But they, the things they develop, it turns out, are, are you know, they need something to manage these populations, especially when they're overcrowded or they're mentally ill. Um, and so solitary confinement kind of keeps cropping up as a useful tool. And it seems like no matter... This, so many states have the solitary confinement. There are no national guidelines, very few state guidelines. Correct. And no matter what state is in, even in Maryland here with our supermax and whatever else we have here exactly. in Baltimore and Maryland, that it's the warden or the head of the unit or the head of that particular watch for the evening or the morning exactly. making these decisions. Exactly. Which – on the one hand, can be kind of horrifying, especially if there's no mechanism for oversight or transparency. On the other hand, some of the story of the book is about the incredible power that prison administrators had in designing and operating these facilities. And I think it's a nice reminder about how much happens at the local level. At a moment when I think a lot of people are, are scared about what's right. happening at the national <laughs> level, to step right. back and say, this was the Supermax was a local innovation. Arizona and California built the first of these long-term solitary confinement facilities. They built them with no judicial or legislative oversight. And then places like the federal government came in and saw them and said, oh, this seems like a good idea, and they copied it. But I think it's really important to understand that these, you know, that these were really happening not just behind closed doors, but but you know, among local conversations in a way that I think people do have more of an ability to potentially influence than they often imagine. Right. I think maybe probably in the next four years maybe going back to Trying to control. I think the local is going to become more and more important. <laughs> so it's interesting how you begin this. I mean, you, you talk in the very beginning about the Soledad brothers, about George yes. Jackson. Yeah. About you're looking at what you consider to be the root of this 
in a political sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, we've talked about George Jackson a lot in this program in the past. Mm-hmm. His birthday just happened not long ago. Yeah. Um, so talk a bit about that. I mean, that, 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 that you're kind of seeing how the Soledad brothers' indictment, their resistance when they were accused of killing this prison guard, um, uh, and how that kind of led to this place we are now. That, that we don't often make that kind of connection. And this is one of the things that really surprised me in the research, especially as a scholar of criminal justice policy and prisons. The story that we tell and the story I expected to be telling is about changes to sentencing and to the kinds of things that are considered crimes that led to a drastic increase in the prison populations in across the United States in the 1980s. And so that's where when we sort of talk about prison and punishment policy today. That's often where we start is in that in that moment right. when there's this uptick in incarceration, all the states are building prisons. And that's exactly that's kind of the obvious story about supermaxes in places like Pelican Bay or Maryland supermaxes. They were built when states were building new prisons because they had more people to put in them. Um, but it turns out the story goes way further back. And and when I started asking the people in California who were building the prisons in the 1980s why they were so committed to this idea of a supermax, they kept pointing to George Jackson, which as someone who hadn't grown up in California and wasn't alive when George Jackson died, I really I had a vague sense as someone who studied prisons, but I, I just knew very little about him. Right. And it was a really fascinating piece of the story to realize how important he was and how forgotten he is. You know, now when I teach undergraduate classes, I'm sort of shocked how few people Nobody in California who know who he is. Right. Um, but he, you know, he's he and what he represented, and I think there are many iterations of him across the United States in terms of the kind of revolutionary organizing that was happening not just outside of prisons but inside, inside. of prisons, um, it, it is really an important backstory to the kind of prison system we have today. And, and it's a story that many people are starting to tell. I tell the story about George Jackson in California who was shot on the prison yard and people still debate about whether – he was trying to escape. Right. The prison staff say he smuggled a gun in in a tape recorder. Now, tape recorders were big back then, but they weren't quite big enough to smuggle in the kind of gun they say he smuggled in. Um, uh, and and then Jackson's supporters say that he was set up by the FBI. And when you read about the history of that period, it's not it's not as much of a conspiracy theory as you might think in terms of right. um, the ways they were involved in trying to control revolutionary organizers. Um, and then, you know, similar stories about Attica being being told too. That and and that's what was interesting as I started to learn about George Jackson. I realized this had happened in all different ways across the United States, that the same stories about how George Jackson was so scary and people needed tools to respond to him are told in New York about how Attica was so scary and the prison officials needed tools to respond. And whenever there are moments of violence in the prison system, people point back to to these, you know, even today when there are, you know, when there were the prison escapes in New York and the prison uh, officers were accused of beating up prisoners after the escape, they said, well, we have, you know, we have this memory of Attica in our heads that we're responding to. So the power of these myths. So what was it directly, do you think, about the Pelican Bay? How do you make the connection here directly between Pelican Bay and George Jackson, Soledad Brothers, and George Jackson was yeah. killed, and Fleet of Drum go in? Why am I blocking on the other guy's name? I just... Oh, well, there were six. There were three, there, three, three, three Soledad six. Brothers. Oh, there were three Soledad Brothers, yes. Um, was it John Clouchette? Yes. Yes, yes. yes, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, they're, they're, the yes. intrigue here is uh, powerful. But, uh, well, so there's two connections. One is just the one I uncovered as I was talking to people who were building prisons who kept pointing, you know, they could tell me the moment 
George Jackson died, August 21st, 1971, Sunday afternoon, uh, and that what they needed was a supermax to control the kinds of people who were involved in that revolution. Uh, But then as you uncover the use of solitary confinement in the state, you see it coming up again and again. So one of the stories I tell in the book is about Hugo Pinnell, who was accused of uh, helping Jackson try to escape in 1971. He was the only one of the six people who were ultimately charged in the San Quentin Six who uh, stayed in prison. His charge was never fully overturned. So, I mean, one of the interesting things about this is the entire case unraveled over time. But Pinnell was in prison. He was one of the first people transferred to Pelican Bay when it opened in 1989. So he'd been in isolation in other kind of makeshift isolation facilities in California from 1971 to 1989. He's transferred to Pelican Bay when it opens. And then around some reforms in the last few years, Hugo Pinnell was where the state promised to get these people who'd been in isolation for decades back into the general prison population. Hugo Pinnell was transferred into the general prison population and he was murdered a few days later. Um, And so these kinds of stories that just the narrative arc extends directly from 1971 through the Supermax. And Hugo was someone that prison officials pointed to repeatedly as a justification for the Supermax, even though he'd been in isolation for more than 40 years by by the time he spent those few days in the general prison population. So, I mean, it's interesting when you talk about... The hunger strikes were taking place in, mm-hmm. in 2013, early in the book and, and throughout the book a little bit. Um, and your testimony that you didn't expect mm-hmm. to have to give. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> People love this story. <laughs> yeah. But so that, that there's always been this kind of – you can talk a bit about that. Mm. And, and but there's always been this tug and pull between reformers – Trying yes. to find come up with ways, many people did as you say. There were dozens of ways people were saying yes. you could do this without that, without this kind of isolation. Yes, didn't go anywhere. But and you were called to testify. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. <laughs> well, as as someone, I mean, I sort of outed myself at the beginning. I came at this as a prison advocate who had uh, right. worked in in litigation and advocacy around these issues, and then have slowly uh, come to think that research and and fairly objective research that really tries to see both sides of these issues is absolutely vital. But as a result, I found myself kind of perpetually caught between these two between multiple sides, really, between a kind of objective research side and a and an ethical advocate side that says this is torture. And, you know, what happened to me when I testified, people said, we don't need any more research, right? We don't even need to talk about this. And just trying, and then also caught between prisoners who I've corresponded with and advocated for, and prison staff who I've been working to try to understand as part of this project of, of why did you think this was a good idea and how do you maintain it? And I think navigating all of those communities has been really interesting and it's part of what I hope the book will do is at least allow these people to have conversations with each other and see both sides. Um, and I think, you know, one side that's really important to see is just how scared prison officials are, whether it's legitimate or not, that they really they are afraid of this memory of George Jackson and the fact that when he tried to escape, prison guards did die um, or when he allegedly tried to escape. Uh, and and the and the tension of how terribly prisoners are treated in these facilities and and their long term experiences of that and that we have you know we have to have some way to to talk about this and and one way to do that is to try to understand better who's there and and why they're there and to have more transparency. So let's talk about that. I mean, it's a little bit more depth as you, as you do in the, in the book. And I, I, let, let's for a minute talk about this fellow Carl Lawson. Mm-hmm. Lawson, when I first started reading it, you he died and you found out that he died. But then the next chapter was this gigantically long piece about him and, uh, and, and the people around him and the beginning of Pelican Bay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
as in some ways, it was odd because it was almost like, not odd, but it was like you were also painting kind of a human portrait in some ways of a man who helped design the system that is basically torture. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Right? And it's, and it, you know, this is another, we talk about things that surprised me. George Jackson surprised me. Another thing that surprised me was as someone who had basically been, uh, you know, condemning the people who design and run these institutions for most of my life and came at this research kind of wanting to get more evidence towards that end. In the process of uncovering how they were built, I ended up meeting really interesting people who I think were often trying to do the right thing. And in the same way, sort of perpetually trying to say we have to have compassion for the people who end up in these situations, even if they did bad things in prison and they end up in isolation, you know, losing compassion has all kinds of destructive consequences. I kind of came to see that there's a certain amount of compassion that's needed in relating to the prison staff who work in and design these institutions also. And that um, Carl Larson was someone who also turned out to be fairly human and thoughtful about what he had done. And he was the one who sort of started me off thinking about how scared he'd been of George Jackson. He worked in the prison system um, when George Jackson was accused of trying to escape. He had friends who died in San Quentin at that point. There were a number of prison officials who who were murdered in that era that he knew. Um, And he genuinely felt a fear and an obligation to protect both his fellow prison guards and prisoners who, who were engaged in violence. And you know, he thought that he had designed the best tool to do that. And and like I sort of hinted at before, he designed something that had running water and lights and, uh, you know, adequate space for people based on the standards of the time. Eight by 10 feet is sort of hard to imagine as an adequate space to spend 23 hours a day. But but it was bigger than some of the cells that came before. Um, and so it's this it it turns out to be this kind of ethical juggernaut to really think about who's to blame in this process. So I, I can hear a lot of people listening to this program going, is she serious? These, do you think these people are really that human? That, <laughs> Which ones, right? <laughs> Either the guards or the prisoners. Well, yeah, but. I mean, that, that, that you know, that you, you have people like Carlos, and I, I was really thought about this a lot as I was reading that chapter, and I, I have known people who are prison guards, and I probably have known more people who have been in prison than I know mm-hmm. prison guards, but... Um, in some senses, what he designed was a system that appeared humane because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it had lights and running water. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. But lights, they, 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 the prisoners could not control. Correct. Correct. <laughs> right? Lights are always on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and had these lights. I mean, I had to design a system that was seemingly better than before mm-hmm. without really thinking through the consequences mm-hmm. of the men and or women, but mostly men, mm-hmm. that were putting in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. These holes, right. as you've written it, right. other people have written, right. sometimes for a week, sometimes for a month, but many times for years, right. decades, right. a decade, decades and more. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I maybe this is unfair, but it's almost like I feel like this is like talking about somebody in Nazi Germany who decided to mm-hmm. design um, a, a nicer concentration camp. Right. <laughs> it is. I mean, I guess I guess another piece of the story is that I think some of these officials were kind of shocked by how it ended up being used in the end. So, you know, California has just uh, passed new regulations to limit the amount of time people can spend in these kind of isolation facilities to five years. 
when you think about people like Hugo Pinel who spent 40 years there, it's a huge triumph. Right. Right. When you think about the conditions, it's hard to imagine even five years. But there is, I think, a sense, especially among some of the older, more established correctional administrators, that this got out of control. That, that it was used for more people for longer periods of time than they ever imagined. And also, you know, when the institution opened, there were horrible abuses of the people inside. And I think that, too, you know, prison officials uh, were sort of horrified by what happened when they put some people in cages and put some officers in charge of them and said these are the worst of the worst. And what tends to happen is the officers kind of try to prove they're better and, and people get pretty horribly abused. Um, so I think there were many surprises in the process, both in terms of how it spiraled out in in use and durations and in terms of how much violence ended up being enacted in this place that was supposed to be so clean and nonviolent. Um, and I don't I don't know if we can hold people responsible for not knowing that, right? As someone who studied it now, I say, well, now we should hold people responsible, right? Part, part of the point of the book is to say, you know, we need to make, pay more attention and see these cycles. But part of the problem is if you leave a prison guard to design an institution and no one pays attention to what he's doing, of course he's not thinking about the history and the legal consequences and the medical consequences because that's not what he's an expert in. He's an expert in safety and security. And so I guess I think in some ways the state has an obligation for having not been paying attention, for having delegated so much uh, power to prison officials that they could design and build a prison without legislative or judicial oversight. Yeah. And and I don't think we can ask the same way we can't ask the police to do everything for us, right? I mean, they can't both keep us safe and mitigate racial disputes and right I mean they're not we don't pay them enough and we don't train them enough and I think that's part of the conversation that's happening now. We also can't ask someone who's a prison guard who, you know, doesn't even isn't necessarily required to have a college degree, might get a few weeks of training in many states to make the kinds of decisions that these staff have been asked to make over the years. So we're sitting here and we're talking with a Karamet writer whose book is called 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Confinement. She's also, now also she is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology, Law and Society at the School of Law at the University of California, uh, Irvine. And we'll be right back. The Mark Steiner Show is brought to you by MeQ, Baltimore's credit union. Offering a full range of financial services, MeQ, Baltimore's credit union, is helping its members and its community prosper. When you invest in yourself, MeQ invests in you. More information, www.mecu.com. This is Mark Steiner. I am here with uh, Dr. Karamet Reiter, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Criminology, Law, and Society in the School of Law at the University of California, Irvine. And we're talking about her book, um, Pelican Bay, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. The, I mean, even people like the President Obama and others have, have uh, recognized that, and other people recognize that solitary confinement is just not the way to proceed, that it's wrong, yes. that it's not... Yeah. How we need to treat I mean, you, 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 I mean, it, it, um, I mean, you talk about people in this book. This one inmate you talk about, Enrique, mm-hmm. clearly a bad dude, <laughs> right? Um, killed people, killed people mm-hmm. in prison, killed people outside of prison. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The boxers he was called mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stabbed these, they stabbed this guy, didn't kill him, but stabbed this guy in a, in a third life sentence, and he was put in solitary for a long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. 
So clearly, I mean, and 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 I. And I do know people like Henrique and Henrique. Mm-hmm. I know they exist, and they are, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're who they are. But so that, but the question is, is the way to treat them, and is as you also not that he should be treated this way, but you treat him the way you treat somebody who might spit at a guard or might mm-hmm. defy a guard, mm-hmm. who doesn't want to work, and is put in isolation. I mean, that's what's happening, as you describe in the book as well. That this is. That this, the, you don't have to be a bad person to be put inside a bad actor, overused. I should say. Yes, be put yeah. inside solitary confinement, yeah. and even people like Enrique, there have to be other ways to deal with Enrique than right putting him in a box right forever. Right, and even if there are some people who are dangerous in the moment, and we need some tools, and again, these are these are really tough questions that that require more than a staff member with a few weeks of training to respond to. But even if there are some people who might need that for some period of time, it's hard to imagine that there are thousands of people who need that for decades, which is the situation we're in. Does in anybody need it for decades? No. I mean, I, I, there's very little evidence <laughs> that, that anyone does, that, that, it, that it either, you know, one of the things that's amazing about solitary confinement is that it hasn't really systematically been studied in terms of this is a huge financial investment in infrastructure and in annual care right. to take, you know, right. it's, it's right. generally about twice as much to keep someone in isolation as in the general prison population. Um, and, and even though we're spending astronomical amounts of taxpayer money on this, we don't even know how many people are there or how long they've been there, let alone whether it's reduced violence in the way people have claimed or helped keep, you know, entire prison institutions safer. Um, and there's even there's debates about uh, exactly what the long term psychological consequences are. We know there are short term consequences, but we don't you know, this is kind of a mass experiment we've been engaging in. And we don't know how people recover after 10 or 15 years. It's not something we've evaluated either. Some people you talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, I think the interesting how to kind of talk about how you approach these. One was mm-hmm. the Madrid case mm-hmm. um, and um, the judge who tried it, mm-hmm. Judge Henderson, if mm-hmm. I remember right, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, Felton Henderson. Yeah. <laughs> and, and why that was so significant, why you spent so much time on it. Mm. So uh, partly it's significant because Felton Henderson is kind of a, a giant in the civil rights field. He's been a federal district court judge in uh, San Francisco for decades. He started out, he was one of the first African-American attorneys in the Department of Justice during the civil rights movement. And he was one of the first African-American judges appointed to the bench. And he's heard cases about everything from dolphin safe tuna to welfare <laughs> benefits to for veterans to some of the earliest prison conditions cases in California around George Jackson and how his... Uh, alleged co-conspirators were being treated. And he was the judge who drew the case about whether Pelican Bay and these conditions of long-term solitary confinement were constitutional or not. And his first instinct about the case was, well, this is obviously unconstitutional, which is a kind of an interesting starting point. He heard about it because he started getting letters from prisoners who had been confined there asking, you know, is this constitutional and describing the conditions of confinement. Uh, And that's important on its own that a judge who had been overseeing prison conditions in the state for years already was surprised by what had been built at Pelican Bay that really no one knew. He first learned about it when he got letters right. from prisoners. Um, and so he starts investigating. He makes some trips up there himself. He summons the warden down to talk to him in San Francisco. And he kind of facilitates a class action uh, case being brought. He, he appoints lawyers to some of the prisoners who are complaining. And, and 
the case became Madrid v. Gomez. It was the first case in the U.S. to assess whether these long-term conditions and these modern facilities with the lights on and the running water were constitutional or not. And in the end, what he found was there were many unconstitutional things happening at Pelican Bay. Prisoners were being beaten up and denied medical care, and seriously mentally ill prisoners were being placed in isolation and deteriorating drastically. Uh, And he found that those things were unconstitutional. The kinds of policies and procedures in the place weren't okay. But on that fundamental question of whether people could be kept in this kind of long-term isolation indefinitely, he said that was constitutional. And that kind of gave legitimacy to these institutions. California and Arizona built the first and then other states copied in part because they looked to this fact that there was this big case decided by a liberal judge holding that, you know, as long as as long as you trained your staff well and you gave these guys health care, it was constitutional, um, which is kind of a, you know, one of the tragedies of the Supermax story is the challenges of, and this was one of the things I was struggling with when I testified before the legislature, also the challenges of trying to do reform and then sometimes entrenching something even more. So I, mean, I, I found that really interesting. I, mean, I would, And I, as much as I've read about this, I really hadn't read that much about that case until mm. um, uh, you wrote this in your book. Mm. Um, and I found it really fascinating to see just how difficult it is to to get our way through this and get our way out of this. Mm. Uh, you, you talk about this inmate, Ray, mm-hmm. for a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and his case obviously was compelling for you, mm-hmm. as was his story. Mm-hmm. Uh Tell me a little more about – I gave them all pseudonyms. (laughs) Lovely. Um, Oh, yes. Uh, So so Ray spent years in isolation um, and and he described for me – the kind of process of overcoming his time. So he's so as part of the process of doing the research for this book, I really wanted to talk to people in isolation. And basically the prison had no interest in, in right. letting me in to do this research. But one of the things I did was find people who had been in isolation and, and then later had gotten out. Right. And so Ray was one of those people. And he was one of the first to really describe to me what, what the transition was like from years in isolation to coming out into the general prison population and then coming out onto the streets eventually when he paroled. Um, and so he he talked about just the how little access he had to human contact in in isolation. So things like when his brother died, uh, right. that was the only time he received a phone call in years. And so he knew if he was even being permitted to talk on the phone that something terrible had happened in his family. Um, and then what it was like to try to process that alone in his cell. Um, and and so it's one of those you know just trying to understand how people endure for years in these conditions and then how they uh, move beyond it. And you know, one of the things that was really memorable for me about him was saying when he got out, he had to teach himself to smile again because he had it had been so long since he had seen another human face and kind of learned to engage, you know, face to face to make the right kind of facial gestures and expressions and, and that he was conscious of having to teach himself that again. So I'm, I'm curious where you've come to with all this. I mean, you know, I, I read your op-ed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got, read your book. Um, and you talk also about the the resistance that's taken place in prisons, the prison strikes that took place in Pelican Bay and prison strikes that took place around the country in response to this. Um, which is not the same thing as happened in the 60s with the actual rebellions that took place inside of prisons. 
Um, but but those and there's just been another hunger strike across mm-hmm. the United mm-hmm. States mm-hmm. by by people who are incarcerated. Mm-hmm. So and labor strikes recently. And, at, that's at, my best my Attica. Yes, right, yeah, right? yeah, both hunger strikes and labor strikes. It, right? Yes, yeah. Um, and that there's some changes you write about that happened in Pelican Bay mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. of just the publicity and everything mm-hmm, else mm-hmm. is kind of forced the issue. So I'm curious, where, where have you come to with all this now? I mean, you know, I mean, there are things from the kind of the prison abolition movement all the way over to, no, um, we have to keep people in isolation. I'm afraid that our new president-elect will probably rescind mm-hmm. President Obama's order to to, to deal with isolation. So tell me where Although, you come to. Not to be the perpetual optimist, but President Obama's order was really limited in its effect. But Very it limited. It was about federal prisoners. So, you know, Trump can rescind that and, and there will still be all this state-level reform going on that it will be much harder for him to influence. But um, so, you know, as someone who has been studying this and been angry about it for more than a decade, it is amazing to see the change that's happening. So on on one positive note, you know, there were 500 guys at Pelican Bay who'd been there more than 10 years on these indeterminate sentences as gang members. And as of last month, only five of them are left in Pelican Bay because of the hunger strikes and the activism that happened around it and the state agreeing to reform these policies and get them out. That's a huge triumph. But part of the story of the book is that we can't sit back and celebrate that because these institutions have always been hidden and unless we keep paying attention and unless we work with prison officials to give them different tools to manage these populations, whether that is more training, more money, different kinds of institutions, I don't see us actually changing. Solitary confinement has always existed in U.S. prisons. It's just kind of changed superficially in form over time. And now we've got 500 guys spread throughout the 130,000 people in the California prison system and the... Um, lawyers who were litigating this case and settled it have the right to monitor them for two or three years at best. And then we're not going to know what happened to them. Do they go back into isolation in some other prison that we're not paying attention to now? So absent some kind of really clear ongoing attention to what's happening and who's going to isolation, I think we could easily revert back to where we were before. And that's kind of part of the story of the book is you see these cycles of attention and reform and then kind of backlash and and retrenching in less visible places. So one argument is we really have to pay attention. And another that's that's come to me over time as I've done this work and come to feel some compassion for people like Carl Larson who designed these institutions and been very surprised by my sort of gut instinct that there's a human being there too and tried to relate to it is that we have to have more conversations with the guards who work in these institutions and who are scared to go to work every day. And that can be really hard because I also don't necessarily agree with them that they should be scared because <laughs> I've worked with these guys and I don't I don't think that all of these maybe if maybe some of these prisoners are scary but I've spent a lot of time with a lot of these guys and very few of them are scary. But that doesn't mean that the prison officials don't have valid fears that we have to figure out how to engage with. I mean, I mean, my my, my time, granted, it was a while back um, <laughs> when I worked in prisons, in literally in a prison. Yeah. Um, was that I always thought that that ninety percent of the men serving time in the prison I worked really shouldn't have been in prison. I think that that estimate is roughly true given our prison populations. And that's roughly true of solitary, too. 90 to 95 percent kind of got caught up and shouldn't be there. And that – because there's a difference between being isolated from other people 
and being put into solitary. Yes. So we don't put people, we don't separate people anymore. We put them in solitary, mm -hmm. which is a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, and and I'd say there were one, two out of every hundred guys that I met that were just you, irretrievable. You couldn't, mm -hmm. they weren't going to change and they were tough and they were mm -hmm. mean and mm -hmm. whatever happened to them, mm -hmm. um, they were going to remain people who would mm -hmm. enjoy hurting other human mm -hmm. beings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's real, too. Yeah. I also felt like when I was there that 90% that of the guards <laughs> were pretty mean mm. and mm. vicious mm. when it came to their dealings with mm. mostly non-white inmates mm. under mm -hmm. their mostly white direction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then again, I found a good 10% of the guards who I thought were some of the nicest human beings I've ever met in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Really cared. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, so it's a, not an easy situation to kind of parse out, right? Right. Um, and... So when you read the stories of the men who come out and how difficult it is for them to kind of even deal with the world they're out, I mean, you go from, as you write about, you can go from solitary to the streets without any warning in a sense, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's why I was asking you before where, where you've come to with this. I understand that you have to kind of understand where everybody is mm -hmm. as you write in the book. I mean, mm -hmm. Pelican Bay was put in a rural area for specific reasons because it's a, it, people were in the business of forestry and, mm -hmm. and forest mm -hmm. workers and mm -hmm. that industry was gone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, but that's happening everywhere in America. Right. That's right. why the prisons are on the eastern shore right. of Maryland, the rural areas, right. and why they're being built out right. in western Maryland, right? right. Well, the coal right. mines are no more. Yep, yep. So, so, so it's a very complex thing. Yes. So I'm going to go back to where I, earlier. I'm saying, so where, where you think, if, if you say that we have to understand all sides of this, mm -hmm. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Mm -hmm. Right. So what does that take us, though? I mean, what mm -hmm. do we... How do, you, how do you think people proceed in changing what exists? I'm sorry, I said a lot there just to get no, to that point. No, I no. Think, I think the first step is obvious, and it goes to that, you know, I think most people who've been in prisons, and I think even prison guards would agree about this, we overuse incarceration and we overuse solitary confinement. And so there's a first easy step that a lot of states are engaged in right now of let's just drastically reduce our use of this. Let's make sure that we put caps on the length of time people can stay here. California said five years. New York has said 30 days in many cases. Um, and I think that's a huge step forward to try to both reduce the number of people experiencing these conditions of confinement and the length of time they're spending there. And it's obvious and there's a lot of consensus around it, I think, across, you know, among prisoners and staff and, and across the political spectrum. But then we are left with this really and, and there's also movements to get people under 18 and the mentally ill and vulnerable populations out. Again, widespread agreement. But then we are left with this really tough core of people uh, who either have really antagonized the prison system in some way or have committed really violent crimes and have trouble following the rules and functioning in a, in a general prison population. And there we have a set of really tough questions where I think there is a really valid claim that we should just abolish solitary confinement entirely. And, and the perspective I'm trying to bring in is I just don't ever think it's going to work unless we bring prison officials to the table and try to brainstorm with them about what the alternatives are that we can build together. And I don't know what they are because we're still 
the prison systems that are engaging in reform are trying to figure it out. Is it having a lot more mental health staff in these facilities and working more one-on-one with people? Is it relaxing the conditions by giving people TVs, more access to nature, uh, a little more human contact day to day? I mean, we just, you know, we're in we're in an ongoing experiment. But part of my argument is, yes, there's a completely valid claim for abolition of solitary confinement. But it's backfired so many times and we have to have a different kind of conversation about it. So is another book coming out? <laughs> well, so I am I am starting research in Washington State, which is one of the places that I think has been the most progressive in terms of trying to drastically reduce their use of long-term solitary confinement. And one of the big pieces of that project that I just didn't have the opportunity to do in California because they were so closed is to talk to prison staff and to really bring, you know, to try to understand better just what it's like to work in these units and what it's like to participate in reform. Um, so, yeah, I hope someday there will be another book that maybe will tell a slightly more positive story, although who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, I've really enjoyed this conversation and, and you're a very good writer. <laughs> Thank you very much very for good having writer. me. <laughs> no, no, it's wonderful having you here. Karamet Writer, 23-7, Pelican Bay Prison and the Rise of Long-Term Solitary Confinement. And um, this course, will you've heard it today, but it'll be on at steinershow.org. And you can see it uh, along with uh, Shane Bauer and other uh, conversations we've had about Pelican Bay and, um, and solitary confinement. And Kermit, well, good to have you in Baltimore. Thank you so much for coming by the studio. Thanks so much for having me.